Welcome to the Terry and Jesse Show. We have a special edition here. I can't say he's my good friend, but I feel like I know him because I've been watching him on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know what, this guy, he, even though he's a professor, he's a doctor in theology, and uh, you know he's, he's, he's been teaching students for over 20 years at DeSales University, I, I, w- I couldn't tell because he seemed like an ordinary guy that just talked about his love for Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. So, Larry, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the Terry and Jesse show. Well, thank you for all that. I don't teach anymore. I am retired from teaching. Good. And I think, uh, you know, I spent most one of those 20 years teaching undergraduates, you know, oh, okay. just so that 18. And so, you know, I, I learned how to talk to average people. Plus, you know, I'm just a blue collar, middle class boy <laughs> from Lincoln, Nebraska. My dad was a fireman and awesome. mom, a stay at home mom, you know, so yeah. I, I have a, I like to tell people, I have a white collar head, but a blue collar soul. So let me ask, it's a strange combination. Let me ask you this, Larry, because unfortunately, you're probably in my age bracket. Uh, not unfortunately, but unfortunately, a lot of our <laughs> uh, guys and girls born in the baby boomer ages are not practicing the faith today. I just want to set the stage. What got you? Am I, I mean, I'm not asking you to tell your testimony, maybe a short testimony, but what kept you Catholic or what brought you into the church? Give me a little background on your own life, please. Well, my, uh, I grew up a cradle Catholic, okay. like I said, in Lincoln, Nebraska, a fairly conservative area. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, my parents were not exceedingly Catholic. I mean, we we went to Sunday mass, but not necessarily with great regularity and so on. It was a very lukewarm mm-hmm. Catholic upbringing. I didn't go to Catholic school. I went to public schools. Right. And, you know, I got confirmed and all that. But I gradually drifted away from the faith. I By the time I was in high school, I didn't believe in the Catholic faith anymore. I, I wasn't an atheist or an agnostic. I didn't know what I was. <laughs> then I then I kind went I went through a little evangelical Protestant phase. Good. I thought, well, okay, I believe in Jesus at least or whatever. But then, you know, I've always been a very intellectual, bookish, sort of nerdy little guy. <laughs> and I started I started reading C.S. Lewis. Oh yeah. And and he mentioned a guy named G.K. Chester. Oh, my favorite. And then Chesterton started mentioning this guy named Cardinal Newman. Oh my so I started, God! You know, so I, I I read Lewis, then Chesterton, then Newman. I, I began to realize, oh geez, you know, this Catholic stuff is pretty pretty <laughs> solid. So then I went off to seminary. Really? And, uh, yes, I was in both as an undergraduate learning philosophy. Then I went to graduate seminary, got my theology there, Mount wow. St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Yeah. But I ended up not getting ordained, and I went on to Fordham University to get my doctorate in theology instead. I, I decided I, I really wanted to be just a lay theologian and not a priest. Okay. And so here I am all these years later, grad, retired from teaching 10 years ago to start this crazy Catholic worker farm. I love it. Out here in northeastern well, PA. And I- then about four years ago, I started blogging and writing again yeah. and doing videos and stuff. Wow. Hey, well, I'm glad you are. Thank you for doing that. The church needs guys like you. Just before we get into this article, I want to give a plug to the farm that you started. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with, um, well, Dorothy Day, and what's the connection with you? Yeah, well, I was teaching, and my wife is a PhD in theology, too, and she taught at DeSales University as well. Wow. And we were both both teaching Catholic social teaching, you know, and Catholic morality, and we both became smitten with the writings of Dorothy Day and her co-founder with the movement of Peter Morin. And what a lot of people don't understand because of the reputation amongst Orthodox Catholics, you know, of Dorothy Day, which isn't great. What they don't understand is Dorothy was actually a very devout Catholic. She was a very Orthodox Catholic. Yep. 
She was a pacifist and all that. She was pretty much out there fighting for workers' rights and all that. Uh, but she was very, very devout and orthodox Catholic. And so I was just very drawn to the coming together of of strong, devout Catholicism and, and a kind of radical opposition to modern culture, modern American culture in particular, with consumerism and and, you know, it's it's wealth and it's excesses and so on. And uh, her co-founder, Peter Morin, was big on, on Catholic worker farms. Dorothy Day was more about uh, houses of hospitality, soup kitchens, emergency shelters in the cities, although she championed the farms, too. But Peter had this agrarian vision of that was far less activist. They were they were a nice complement to one another. She was the activist out there in the streets fighting for the poor. He was the guy who said, we need to build a new culture within the shell of the old. We just need to sort of build like, I guess you would say he was doing kind of like what we would call the Benedict option before his time. He thought, you know, we need to, in a sense, get into our agrarian roots and start these little farms as centers of prayer and meditation and cultivation. He called it cult uh, cultivation and culture. Those were his three. And do you have a website that people could go to to find out more about that? Yes, uh, it's uh, just look up the Dorothy Day Catholic Worker Farm. Just Google that ddcwfarm.org, I believe is, is the actual title. But just type in Dorothy Day Catholic Worker Farm. Yeah. It's the one, you know, with uh, in Harvey's Lake, Pennsylvania. It'll come up. Good. All right. Well, now that I got that settled about your own your own walk with Jesus. And uh, I love asking yeah. people that question because everybody's got a particular way of coming in to their relationship with Jesus Christ. So thank you for sharing that. You wrote an article for the Catholic World Report. It said, avoid moral theologies from below and puncture the eminent frame. And uh, this article that you wrote was back on January 7th. I read it and I said, wow, I got to find out who this guy is. And and so I nailed you down. I get a phone call in and you answered the phone. Yeah, what can I do for you? And I said, I want to have you on our radio show. I want you to tell us about uh, why you wrote this article and also... Um, I want to also cover something that I think is important before we get into the article, but and that is the principle that says good philosophy breeds good theology. And it, and it appears to me that some of the problems in the church, I'm not saying every single problem, okay, but some of the major problems we're having in the yes. church is that some of our guys, and I'm counting you know, the hierarchy, where did they get their philosophy? Because their theology isn't, you know, consistent with what the, you know, what I call the perennial teachings of the church. And I'm just Joe Sixpack making that comment. It just appears that way. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, you're not wrong. The fact is, is that the church from time immemorial has, you know, since the Council of Trent, essentially, and its reform of seminaries, has required seminarians before they take theology in major seminary, On the undergraduate level, they get philosophy degrees. My undergraduate degree from my undergraduate seminary is in Thomistic philosophy. It's not in theology. It's not in theology. And the church has always recommended the study of St. Thomas. And that's because grace builds on nature, doesn't replace it. And theology uh, doesn't replace our reason. It builds upon it. And theology requires uh, an internal logical moment. And it requires critical thinking that makes sense, where ideas connect, where there are logical 
you know, connections between ideas. And, and so the church always recommended that the, the the Catholic theologian begin with the, the, the philosophy of St. Thomas. Now you can branch out from the philosophy of St. Thomas and yeah, the, like Pope John Paul II oh, yeah. also added a few other philosophical currents from the modern world to supplement his fundamental Thomism. But you have to have that. Right. Otherwise, you end up with some bad theology. Unfortunately, an entire generation of priests, my generation, mm -hmm. you know, the, yeah. when you mentioned the baby boomers. Yeah, right, right. There was a tendency after the council in a lot of American seminaries yeah. where instead of teaching philosophy, they taught psychology, sociology, counseling, yeah. those sorts of things. And so it was not at all unusual for guys to eventually get ordained with uh, no, virtually no philosophical background at all. And then they got to theology and the theology was all liberal and silly and crazy uh, as well. One of the good things that did come out yeah. of the sex abuse crisis in 2002 mm -hmm. when it hit the fan was the Vatican ordered under Pope Benedict, mm -hmm. Vatican uh, eventually on first jump and then Benedict ordered a review of the seminaries in the yeah, United yeah. States. Yeah. And out of that review came some real reforms. And so I think, fortunately, seminaries today are much, much better. I couldn't agree more. Believe me, I have a lot of my friends my age that are priests today, and some of them are seminarians. I would agree with everything you just said. L Dr. Larry, you said in this article that, uh, well, can you tell us why you wrote this article and kind of go through it with us, please? Why'd you write it? <laughs> Well, the first reason I wrote it is because I was angry. <laughs> you know? Yeah, confession. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. I went to confession. And, you know, this this was on top of, you know, 10 years of essentially this pope's biggest supporters being people that say, uh, you know, let's not be too hard on sinners. Let's just let people slide. You got to meet people. You know the yeah, type. You got to meet people where they are. Don't be preaching anything about right and wrong and commandments. Let's just love everybody. Let's just say, uh, can we all get along and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, this has been 10 years of this stuff and it's just stewing in me. And then I, like I said, I went to confession and everybody listening has had this experience. I'm not any different no. where you go to confession. And I, I, I admit I wasn't confessing any mortal sins. There was nothing mortal. It was just basic garden variety, yeah. impatient with this, this annoyed at that person said something uncharitable to that guy, you know, flip somebody off in the car who cut me off that, that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. All right. Basic stuff. All right. And the priest then spent the next 15 minutes telling me why none of that was a sin. Oh. And I was being too hard on myself. In fact, by the end of the confession, I walked out of there feeling like what he was trying to convince me was that the only sin I had committed was coming to confession in the first place, that I was being too scrupulous, yeah. that I was, you know, I was too hard. He told me that I needed to seek psychological counseling oh, yeah. instead of coming to the confession. Oh, God, I was. So I left that thing and I wrote to my editor, Carl Olson at Catholic World Report. Man. Nice. Oh, he's a great hold guy. And I, We've I got, hold your thought. we got the break coming. Dr. Larry Chap is talking about his article, Avoiding Moral, Theolo uh, Moral Theologies from Below and Puncturing the Eminent Frame. He's telling a neat story about him going to confession that we all can relate to. And when we come back, he'll finish that story and much more. You're listening to The Terry and Jesse Show on Virgin, most powerful radio. Stay with us, family. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. Jess is gone for the day. I always say I'm too blessed to be stressed. I'm too anointed to be disappointed. And if hope was money, I'd be a billionaire. 
because I'm listen, I'm interviewing Dr. Larry Chap, and he's teaching me a lot about my Catholic faith. And I asked him to come on because of an article that he wrote, and he's in the middle of talking about the confessional and how he was kind of, uh, I, I want to say spiritually abused, but that's what I call it, but maybe I'm being too hard on the priest. Well, uh, yeah, he meant well. I mean, he was just <laughs> yeah, of that generation, you know. He was just of that generation that was taught that, Thank you. That, that, you know, yeah. he was taught probably, to get serious, yeah. he was taught a moral theory that was taught, a moral theological theory that was taught 60s through the yeah. 80s yeah. Uh, called fundamental option. Yep. And fundamental option moral theory says this, and it's a Catholic theory, that it's almost impossible to commit a mortal sin. In fact, it's almost possible to commit any sin, because the only thing that matters is whether or not you have fundamentally opted for God or fundamentally opted against God. So it's a very black and white moral theology. If you're you're either with God or you're against him, very few people are against God. Yeah. So because your basic disposition is you're for God, you're you're a happy God guy. Therefore, nothing you do can break God's love for you. Nothing you do can be that bad, really. And so we got to get away from this church of sin, 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 sin. Now, there's something to be said. You know, you don't want a legalistic moral I, theology. I rules and rules and rules. Yeah. But, you know, that's probably what this old priest had been taught. You know that. So he's telling me, hey, forget about it. Forget about it. Nothing's a sin. So I went to Carl's and I said, I got to write an article about this. And he said, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. I mean, you don't rant and rave, obviously, but connect it up with uh, some broader topic, which I did, which is what I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. There are these moral theologies that crept into the church after the council that departed from uh, the, the, the moral theology of Thomas Aquinas. And then now they depart from moral theology of Pope John Paul II in his great encyclical Veritate Splendor which rested on St. Thomas Aquinas, too. And moral theology is traditionally always focused on what we call the objective act. What are you doing? What is this? What is this action that you are doing? And then judged it objectively. Is it right or wrong? Objectively. Is it right or wrong to kill somebody? Is it right or wrong to commit adultery? Yeah. And then only then do you move into motives and unique circumstances to try and figure out you know, we do this in our legal system, too, right? Of course we do. Is, this, is it first-degree murder, second-degree murder, yeah. third-degree murder, manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter? And it all depends on circumstances and intent. The net result is the same, a dead person. But whether or not it's first-degree okay, so you have to adjudicate all that. you got to figure all that out as a sure. confessor, right? Sure. But you don't, you don't begin with the presumption from below that the person is, 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 uh, is not responsible for things. This is not an I'm not saying you're guilty until proven innocent. What I'm saying is the presumption in moral theologies from below is that nobody's ever really responsible for what they do. There are always unique circumstances that are going to explain your motives and why you did things. And so, yeah, the church has all of these rules, but let's just treat them as ideals. <laughs> like don't don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, Thanks. steal, cheat, yes. those sorts of things. Those are ideals, and none of us live up to them perfectly. Let's look at everybody in their unique circumstances, <laughs> in their place in life. And when you do that, you will discover that the 99% of the things that we think people are sinning at are, are no sins at all. That's the problem. You gave a great explanation. My, my memory tells <coughs> me that was Richard McCormick. If I'm wrong, correct me. McCormick, he didn't he talk about that fundamental option? 
He talked about it. Uh, Carl Rahner talked more yeah, about it, but yeah. he talked about it. Uh, but he, Richard McCormick and Charles Curran were two American moral theologians yeah. in the 60s, uh-huh. 70s <clears throat> who pushed a moral theology related to fundamental option uh-huh. called proportionalism or consequentialism. Right. And what that moral theory said is uh, a moral act is only determined to be right or wrong, essentially by its consequences. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, whether or not you foresaw good or bad consequences. And so you calculate and so on. Got it. Well, thank you for that clarification. So now tell us more about the article and why you, what, what you're trying to communicate to the reader and now our listener. Well, the main thing that I'm, I'm trying to communicate is, is that we need to rediscover in the church our sense of sin, yeah. our, our sense, of, and not just sin in a negative, finger-wagging, school-marmy kind of way. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the sense that, and this goes back to the Second Vatican Council, mm-hmm. The, the universal call to holiness, oh, the God. central vocation of every lay person, yep. just like priests or nuns, yeah. is to be holy. Amen. To, be, uh, to become a saint. Exactly. It was Leon Bloy, the great right, French oh. writer Leon Bloy, who said the, the only great tragedy in life is not to be a saint. Now, Leon Bloy was a bit of a scoundrel. <laughs> he <laughs> could be really nasty himself. But the, the, I love that phrase that's from Leon. I use all the time. Oh, yeah, Great. that's the only tragedy. And so my my beef, if you will, yeah. my, the reason why I wrote the article yeah. and then the point I'm trying to make in the article is yeah. that this is the business that the church is in. It's in the saint making business. We are to be like Christ. It brings us Christ in the sacraments and in the doctrines of the church with one goal in mind and one goal only to make us all into other Christs, if you will, to imitate Christ, to become one with Christ, to become saints in Christ. That's the goal of the church. But a church that has that as its goal is therefore going to have some pretty high standards for people. Now, it's going to realize that most people, all of us, are going to fail at those standards. That's why it's got the thing called the confession you box. Think? You think? All right. That's why. And by the way, speaking of like the, all, all in the news these days is blessings. Who are we going to bless? Oh, and we bless homosexuals. You know, there's a really great blessing that the church already gives exactly. to sinners. It's in the confessional. Amen. It's a really good blessing because it takes your sins away from you yeah. <laughs> if you're contrite and sorry for your exactly. sins. That, that blessing's been there for 2,000 years. All right. So we don't need to invent new blessings. But that's and so that's kind of related to this article okay. because I've written I've written against F- Fiducia Supplicans, that new document as well, because it's all part of the same movement, the same dumbing down yes. of our call to holiness. Uh, trying to convince us all that we're all just fine where we are, that God loves us just as I am, and therefore I don't have to change one bit. Here's the deal. God does love you just as you are, and he hates just as you are at one and the same time. He sees what he wants for you to be better. He sees the image of you as he created you to be. And so, yeah, he loves you just as you are in the sense that he's not going to, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And while you are still a sinner, he loves you as you are, but he loves you as you are to call you out of where you are, to call you into sanctity and holiness. Even if it's a slow, gradual process where you fall down over and over and over and go to confession over and over and over, at least you're trying. But the current, the current crop of leaders in the church seem to be saying, ah, just stop, stop already. Yeah. Well, let's just all, let's just all be happy consumers and, and get along in life and, and not worry so much about sin. And this is a big problem. 
Well, can I jump in and ask you this question? It seems like when uh, uh, Archbishop, now Cardinal Fernandez, has become the prefect for the doctrine of faith, or now it's called a catastrophe or something, but here's my question. He was told by the Holy See that we're going to do things different. We're going to do things from the bottom up. What did he mean by that? Just what I'm talking about. Yes. There was a, there was a famous, it's called a motu proprio, which is a document the Pope puts out on his own initiative, essentially. Yeah. And no, nobody's prompted me. I'm just going to do this. <coughs> and it was called the Theologium Provenendum. In other words, on the promotion of theology. And it was about the reform of theology. And essentially, the Pope said, we need to stop repeating the stale formulas of the past. Excuse me, you mean the Bible and doctrines? <laughs> Say that too. You know, we need to stop repeating the formulas of the past. Now, I, I, I know what Pope Francis means here. He doesn't, Pope Francis isn't saying, let's get rid of doctrines, let's get rid of the Bible. I get it. What he's saying is there was a kind of theology that begins from above. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a kind of theology that begins with the dogmas and the doctrines of the faith and mm-hmm. begins with the scriptures and then works its way down to ordinary people. Mm-hmm. He wants theology to do the opposite. He's not repudiating church doctrines. He's not saying they're unimportant. He's saying we're not going to start with them. Instead, we're going to start with people's experiences and build a theology out of people's experiences and then build up from there into the truths of the faith. I'm sorry, this has been done for isn't that, decades. Isn't and every, that, I'm sorry, everywhere it's been tried, it failed. Isn't that a form of liberation theology principle? Well, yes, it's very, very, it's a kissing cousin to liberation theology. Yes, uh, because liberation theology takes that basic notion that the Holy Spirit is working from below, Mm -hmm. working upwards, and then then combines that with Marxist ideology to preach, you know, class struggle and and all that kind of, Pope's not doing that here. He's doing instead just a simple, we need to do theologies that begin with people's experiences. And of course, one of the reasons for this is when you do that, you end up with a theology that just kind of blesses modern times. Yeah. Because what are our experiences, Terry? What are our experiences? Yeah. Our experiences are those of modern people. Of course. <clears throat> we have all the prejudices of modern people. Yeah. So if you're going to begin with your experiences, then you're going to take as, as baseline, as the beginning point, as what we call in theology normative. Yeah the modern world. Yeah. And the and then the Bible and then the church's doctrines have to bend to those truths instead of the other way around. If I can just jump in with a quote from Archbishop Fulton Sheen, he's behind sure. me, full Sheen ahead. He said this, and I think this is applicable for where we're going today. He said this 70 years ago, if I were not a Catholic and I were looking for the true church in the world today, I would look for the one church which did not get along well with the world. In other words, I would look for the church which the world hates. Now, I, I get that that might be a little bit of an extreme yeah. statement, but I think there's a lot of truth there. And I'll tell you what I hear now. We've become too close to the world. Am I honest? Is Bishop Sheen, is this applying to 2024 too, Doc? Yes, it is. Uh, I think it was J.K. Chesterton who said that we don't need a church that's constantly yeah. agreeing with me when I'm right. We need a church that tells me when I'm wrong. Exactly. Okay. You know, that's what you need the church for. That's what dogmas and doctrines are for. Yeah. Theologically, there is markers because we're all, as Sheen points out, we're all prone to succumbing to the tidal wave, the tsunami of, of whatever culture you live in. You know, it's really, really hard for people to swim upstream against the culture. 
Okay, very hard for average people to swim upstream against the culture. That's why the church has to be a rock, a pillar uh, of, of truth and doctrines so that average Catholics can say, okay, well, here's what my culture is saying, but here's what my faith teaches. And I know, therefore, that the culture is wrong. Well said, Dr. Larry Chap. Thank you for stating that. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk more about your article and how we do theology. And I know uh, this article is rather long <clears throat> and laborious in the sense of uh, it would take people a little time to read. I, I read it two or three times. But um, I want to get back into some of the other things that uh, you point out about uh, Catholic moral theology, these key components uh, that I think are fundamental to choosing things that are right or wrong. And it seems like right now we need clarity with charity, and I think that's what you're giving us. So stay with us, family. We'll be back with more on this topic. I think it's really just a short course on moral theology. How do we know something is right? And also, whatever happened to sin? Yeah, that was the name of a book by a Carl Menninger, a Jewish man, back in the 70s. He was right on. Right. He could bring back a sense of sin. Stay with us, family. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse show. And I'm having too much fun. I feel like I'm getting a, a, a university class taught to me on moral theology from Dr. Larry Chap. Thank you, Doc, for teaching us. Thank you. Hey, and I don't mean to get you in trouble when I ask these questions, because you know what? At our age, who cares? I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, in other words, yeah. the truth's the truth. But when you talk about these fundamental teachings about moral theology, I, I, I wanted to bring up what you said and I think it's a, a, a very a poignant thing when you talked about um, the idea that the church, you quoted Pope Francis in saying that the church is like a field hospital. And I don't like that. You know, that was from St. Francis de Sales, The Introduction to Devout Life. That was taken right from that book. But that's, I'm glad he quoted yeah. it. It was good. And he got credit. Yeah. I think it was great. But you, had, you said, however, a field hospital, what do you want to talk? So what did you put in that article? I think you had some good insights on a field hospital. Yeah. Well, a field hospital is still a hospital yeah. and not a hospice, yeah, that's a you know, and, and the, the fact is when people come to a field hospital, the doctors there and the nurses triage you, they determine who's the, who's the sickest, who's then right. we need to attend to right away. Who's hopeless. Now in the church's case, nobody's, nobody's hopeless. hopeless. So, so in that sense, the field hospital analogy limps just a bit. Uh, but nevertheless, the goal is to you know, rate people based on how sick they are and then spend a lot of your time focused on the sickest, uh, sickest people or to return them to health. Yeah. And then you go down. So I agree with the Pope. The church needs to focus, as Jesus said, on the sick, not the healthy. The church needs to focus on, on, on those sinners. But how? That's the question. Yeah. Are we just going to put a Band-Aid on a melanoma and send somebody home and say, there, you're cured? No. Or, as I say, try to convince them that they're basically being hyped, like the guy in the confessional, yeah. that you're just being, oh, you're just, they come to a field hospital with half their arm blown off. Yeah. Oh, it's just a flesh wound. You're a hypochondriac. <laughs> you know, you, you just, you're just a hypochondriac. Here, here's a couple of aspirin. Now go home and leave us alone. <laughs> All right. No, you're not going to minimize uh, the sin. But that's precisely what you see so often. I don't want to say with this pope, but with many of his supporters, of course. Uh, w w uh, you know, in, in the episcopacy yeah. and at the Synod on Synodality, oh, yeah. what you find are people who say they want to treat the field hospital as a, as a place where sick people come in and are declared healthy without giving them any medicine. Yeah, That's hardly a hospital. 
Well, your point in the article also, and I like this because I think it, it really hits the crutch of some of the challenges we're faced with. The church has pits mercy against truth is a grief of the highest order. Can you, uh, can you elaborate on that? A grift of the highest order. It's basically a con. Yeah. It's a con job. You, you, you get people to come into the church by convincing them, Hey, we got rid of all those old rules. Don't worry about the morality thing anymore. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. And, and yet that's a con. You get them to come into the church that way. But then once in the church, they find that it's actually serious business. Yeah. All right. That, that there remain a critical mass of Catholics who actually understand what the church is about, a critical mass of bishops and priests and lay people who still understand the, the, the dynamics of sin, grace, yeah. redemption, sacraments, the holy, the holy life, and so on. And so then you get people into the church under these false pretenses. And then all, all of a sudden, well, I need to go find a more liberal church. I need to, this church is just too conservative. It's, I need to go get a liberal one. It's not conservative. It's just, you've just finally encountered a Catholic one. Okay. Well, you just gave this story because storytelling is, is king when on the radio. And the story that I just come up with is a friend of mine said she sponsored a person in the RCIA program. And, you know, fine. She prayed for him. She did all the things. And then he became a Catholic. And then she called him and said, uh, hey, I didn't see you in church this Sunday. Are you everything okay? Just to check on her. And the guy says, well, yeah, but um, uh, I just didn't feel like going to church today. So the sponsor says, well, I got to tell you something. Uh, uh, you know, unless you got some serious reason, uh, that's against the commandments, not going to church. You got you to go to worship. Remember the commandments, Ten commandments? Yeah. Yeah, and the guy goes, well, nobody told me that in RCIA. Right. You see, there's yeah. an example. Guy, low information. You know, anybody, uh, any of the listeners ever been to the streets of New York City, Manhattan, oh, yeah. <laughs> you can find the the street vendors who are grifters. Yes. Uh, they'll sell you a Gucci purse, a Gucci purse for $5. Now, normally, if you were to buy a brand new Gucci purse, it'd be $500, $1,000, $1,500 or more. Yeah. But you can you can get one with the Gucci logo on it on the streets of New York for five dollars or ten dollars. That's that's a con. That's a grift. Right. OK. And so what what the what these con artists are doing in the church by convincing people there's no such thing as sin is they're selling people essentially uh, a knockoff version of sure. Jesus. It's sure. a counterfeit Jesus. There you go. It's a counterfeit Christ. It's not the real Christ. It's 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 a different Christ altogether. Well, my friend, Father Bill Casey, used to be the Father Superior for the Fathers of Mercy, used to say it this way. The most merciless thing you can do is let someone wallow in their sin. Meaning, come on. I I mean, if if I'm wounded and I'm sick, and and this is what it comes down to, and I'm I'm going to bring it back to your article, and and that is the blessing of homosexuals. It seems to me, and I'm just going to, I think I quote your article when I said it was a pastoral uh, fiasco or a mess because the issue of uh, blessing a couple, what is the couple? I mean, they're using, I mean, it's almost like gymnastics when it comes to uh, speaking. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm like, come on, dude, tell me exactly what you really mean. So here's my question to you is how does that uh, apply here when the document that was written, I mean, you got an entire continent, almost all of African bishops saying, no, this we can't do this. And so, um, yeah. I don't mean to be critical of them. I'm just saying I read it as a layman and I said, you know, a couple for me is a husband and wife. Can't we just, you know, a, I mean, when you say a couple, I always think of, you know, a couple. I don't think of, of uh, a same sex couple. So I'm just asking you, can you clarify 
why there's such confusion in this document? That's my question. Well, I think the document is confused because, as I like to say, it's actually a conclusion in search of an argument. (laughs) And it it. it doesn't really matter what the argument is. As long as it has a certain superficial plausibility, we're going to go with it. And the conclusion that they wanted from the get go was we want to be able to bless homosexual couples. Right now, how can we do this without appearing to really bless homosexual couples? Exactly. Okay. Well, okay. So then Cardinal Fernandez invents a whole new kind of blessing, non-liturgical, non-sacramental blessings. He goes on and on and on for like five pages about here's a whole different kind of blessing. We didn't really even know it really existed. It's always been there. The priest can bless people and he's not really blessing them in a sacramental or liturgical way. Right. It's a non-sacramental newsflash. That's contrary to the Second Vatican Council. Vatican II taught that Every single priestly blessing is embedded somehow, some way, no matter how right. far downstream in the priest role as in persona Christi, as a as a priest, as someone sacred. Why, in other words, why is a gay couple, homosexual couple, why don't they just ask some average lay Catholic to lay hands on them and pray over them? Why are they seeking out a priest? Oh, yeah, great question. Why are they seeking out a priest in the first place? The reason why they want a priest in the first place is because they sense the full sacramental, holy orders, liturgical weight of the priesthood. They don't want Larry Chap, <laughs> Joe, you know, nobody. Right. Laying, that's the, I'm the last person they would want blessing. They want Father Skippy Toes blessing them. Okay. That's what they want. All right. And and I mean, and and the thing is, the cultural context has to be taken into consideration. Yeah. The the people that wrote this document in Rome had to know in advance how it was going to be accepted and received in the among the general population. Immediately, as soon as it hit the ground, Father James Martin, SJ in New York City, calls up the New York Times, has a photographer up in his apartment, calls up two two married gay guys that he's known for years. Come over to my apartment and I'll bless your marriage. And they come over and it's a big photo op. Now, that's all contrary to the stipulations put forward in the document that said it should be private, not publicized, non-liturgical. It should be spontaneous. But Father Martin turns into a photo op and Father Martin is a a favorite of this pope. So the question, you know, is he going to be disciplined? Is any priest that that just today a German bishop came out, I can't remember his name, said we're going to have we're going to have liturgical blessing ceremonies, celebrations for all the people in irregular unions, gays, divorced and remarried. Come one, come all. We're going to bless you all. Now, that's contrary to fiducia supplicants. Is that German bishop going to be removed from office, as we've seen some more conservative bishops removed from office? Uh, I doubt it. I doubt it very highly. Yeah. And, and so this is a conclusion in search of an argument. And the argument is incoherent. And the Africans have pointed this out. Many Italians and yeah. French bishops pointed it out, Polish bishops, mm-hmm. American bishops pointed it out. All right. It's internally incoherent because as the DDF itself, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of Faith itself said in 2021, it's right. in its document that said you cannot bless these homosexual couples. Because you cannot bless sin and there's no way to divorce the blessing from what is being blessed and what is being blessed is a couple, a couple who are presenting themselves to you as a couple. And therefore the presumption has to be, if it's a gay couple that they are engaged in sinful relations. Uh, But the document goes out of its way to say that the priest should make no such judgments in advance and certainly not interrogate anybody in advance because we're not blessing the couple as a couple. We're blessing them as individuals. Really? Individuals. 
Yeah, that's what it says. This is a this is a blessing that's not really a blessing, blessing a couple that's not really a couple. It's blessing individuals who present themselves to you as a couple with a blessing that's not really a blessing on a couple that's not a couple. So follow that, everybody. That out. And, the, and the African stood up and said, this makes no sense. You're asking us essentially to do have a wink and a nod to what everybody knows what's really going on here. And what's really going on is that you are giving a green light to those priests that want to bless gay unions, period. And, End of discussion. And doctor, I think I also add, can you imagine the African church with the Muslims and the Protestants going and saying, you see, you Catholics, we, we, this is a great opportunity to convert you back, convert you to yes. Protestantism or to Islam. Am I onto something or do you think that's an exaggeration? Oh, big time. The, the, look, many African bishops have yeah. brought that, Terry, they brought yeah. that very point yeah. up. We're out there evangelizing. Right. The African church is the only church that's getting millions oh, of converts to come in and they're evangelizing and they're doing well. But what they're up against what they're up against are Pentecostal Protestant sects and they're up against uh, Muslims yes. who are point, pointing at the Catholic Church and saying, you're you're a church filled with pedophile priests. You're a church filled with homosexuals. You're a church that. Uh, and so now you've got a papacy that's saying, yeah, go ahead and bless same sex unions in so many ways. And these African bishops are yanking their hair out going, what are we going to do now? Yeah, that's tough. When we come back, Dr. Larry Chapp will be with us. I want to turn the gears now to something positive, the work he's doing on the farm and also the social teachings of the church. Kind of a summary of it, because I think many of us still haven't embraced fully that. Welcome, Welcome back, back to the right. Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now... Here's Terry and Jesse. Actually, Jesse will be back tomorrow. I've got Dr. Larry Chap. I feel like I'm still, you know, going to school, but I also feel like I'm at a, at a restaurant sitting across from a man who's teaching me the fundamentals on moral theology. <laughs> you know, and I thank you for that, Doc. I mean, you're welcome. we need it. And now I want to I want to shift gears on something I think is real positive. I really do. Dorothy Day. Um, some people might have a misunderstanding of her. I mean, her cause, I think, went to, uh, for the beatification, no, I mean, up to a cause yes. for, sa for sainthood, along with Bishop Sheen at the kind of a similar time. I, if I remember, there were four people. She was one, and so was Bishop Sheen. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about Dorothy and the work she did, and why is she a model for social teachings of the church? I mean, in other words, why is, what, what did she do that we can imitate that would really embrace the social teachings of the Catholic Church? Well, the first thing I'd say is she's a model for for conversion. Mm. Uh, I mean, she her early years, she was a lukewarm Protestant. Then she was an atheist. Wow. Then she was a Marxist agitator. Oh. She actually slept around. She had an abortion, right. uh, which she later regretted in life, repented of. Then she finally had a child. It was the birth of her child yeah. out of wedlock. Mm. But then she started conversing with these nuns who lived near her on Staten Island. And uh, she had her child baptized, a wow. Catholic. And then she herself saw the beauty of Catholicism and entered into the Catholic faith and then slowly but surely began to read because she was concerned. Remember, this is the this was in the era of the Great Depression. Oh, my God, uh, the, the, the 20s and the 30s. At first, it was the boom and then the bust. And even during the boom years, there were we have to remember there were no labor unions. There were no labor laws. There were no child labor laws. Right. And, and, and people that are maybe critical of her for her agitation on behalf of the working classes need to remember, yeah. you know, that the horrific there was no 
you know, OSHA. There was no <laughs> organization for looking out for the rights of workers. In fact, when labor unions first started to form, the Catholic Church was behind them. Yes, and yet they were accused of being communists. Oh. If, if you were supported labor unions, you were accused of being a communist. Wow. That's how controversial they were. So, yeah, she she has a bad reputation in that regard that, oh, she was an agitator for all of these communist causes. But it really, eventually, it became from strictly Clear. Catholic motivations. Oh, yeah. Now, her, her her motivation was Catholic social teaching as it focuses on Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. OK, you know, she believed that the, that holiness was not just for priests and nuns. It was for lay people. Sure. And she believed that even lay people should live out as much as they can a very, very simple life devoted uh, to material simplicity. Don't be consumeristic. Live as simply as you. She herself lived a life of voluntary poverty, like a St. Francis of Assisi. Wow. But she, you know, not everybody has to live that right. way, she said. Live as simply as you can. Don't be a consumerist. She was very much opposed to war and war making. Uh, so you need to be peacemakers, as Jesus said. But for the most part, I, I think for our audience today, yeah. it has to do with understanding in our lives how to apply Catholic social teaching, how not to succumb to consumerism, to the hedonism of our hyper wealthy capitalistic culture. And a lot of people listening might say, well, look, I'm not rich and I'm not a consumerist. I work three jobs just to make ends meet and I'm exhausted. And so, well, she, Dorothy was actually the kind of saint that, you know, would look at that and say, and that's precisely the problem still in the richest nation in the world. Why do we have people that are working their fingers to the bones, three cobbling together, three jobs just to put food on the table, working the night shift at Walmart and then morning shift at the donut place. And then later on in the day, cleaning houses and stuff. Why is it that way? And, and her point was that we need to be aware that we have neighbors that live like that. You know, you and I are privileged, Terry, and a lot, a lot of our listeners are probably very privileged that you have a decent income and a nice home. Yep. But if you look around at the working poor, and I think that's who we're talking about today, the millions and millions of working poor, yeah. not the destitute on the streets, the working poor, good people, honest, decent, hardworking people who need our help. Yes. Uh, and, and I think we need to be on the lookout as Catholics for the sake of our own holiness and sanctity for those in our midst, the working poor in our midst who need our help. I'm going to throw that's what we on, that's what we on our farm have really dedicated ourselves to or the working poor. Yeah. And tell, and so I want to in these few minutes that we have left, I was going to throw you a curveball, but I'll wait for another time to throw you a curve. You'll, you'll hit it. But um, I uh, I want to know that the farm idea and what she's doing to co-op and how to help people. It, it seems to me that, uh, you know, you teach someone how to fish and you can feed them for life. You know that old statement. Yeah. And it seems yeah. like what you're doing is you're giving people uh, tools to support themselves. But tell me a little bit more about this farm and how people well, can get involved. Yeah, that's it's a small farm. It's more like a big homestead. It's only about 11 acres. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people think they're going to come here and see this huge agricultural operation. <laughs> and that's not the case. We have a large area where we grow produce. We have sheep, dairy goats, uh, chickens that lay eggs yep. and that sort of thing. And uh, and so, yeah, we do give food away Good. and we we do it. We do it mainly through our church and we target, as I said, the working poor awesome. people, people that just, you know, that you wouldn't see them on the street handout asking for. But 
they have to choose between food and paying the heat bill. Okay. Those are the people that we give food to now, but beyond that, the main thing that we do is, yeah, people come to the farm and we teach them. Here's how you can grow your own food. Here's how you can have backyard chickens in an area that yeah, will allow you to have sure. backyard chickens. And, and, and my wife, actually, we have sheep, she, uh, she we, we have their wool sheared and she processes the fleece and she teaches people how to spin wool into yarn, uh, and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, those are the kind of little homesteady skills that we teach people awesome. how to can vegetables, that oh, kind that's of thing. Awesome. If I can jump in too, here in California, we have fruit trees, you know, year in the summer fruits, and then we have <clears throat> oranges and, 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 and um, all kinds of uh, citrus that, that just falls on the ground and goes nowhere. And we also have groups that will pick those fruit, the fruit from your yard and give it to, you know, people who can use it. Because so much food is wasted. So many people have, I mean, I have an orange tree that produces hundreds of oranges, avocados, hundreds of avocados. Go buy those in the store. They're, they're, they cost money. So I'm going yeah. to make the suggestion that our listeners in Southern California, especially those fruit trees that you have in your, in your yard, if you have more fruit than you need, bring it to the parish. Bring it to some source that they can use. The, yes. Because I have a grandmother who's Lebanese and uh, she would say this, if you have as much as the ocean, only use what you need. And so never waste food. And it seems like I bet Dorothy Day would probably like the idea, uh, you know, that fact that all the fruit that we have on our trees out here in California that goes to, you know, to the yeah. ground and wait, why not put it to use? I think it makes sense. Yeah, you go back to St. Gregory of Nyssa, no. all the way back to the early church fathers yep. who said that, People said, well, what's too much? What's he goes just oh, yeah. you don't need to own or have more than what you need. Yeah, that's a good and point. now you you define what it means by need, yeah. what it is I need. Now, obviously, if you have children, yeah. you need a certain income and you, you want them to have shoes and good food and, of course. you know, and that that sort of thing. Your primary vocation as a parent is take care of your kids. Exactly. OK. And so it's not at all wrong or bad. And Dorothy Day would say so for a husband or a wife to go out and get a decent dadgum job to make home a little money so you can so you can make sure your kids are taken care of properly. But then again, does your kid need an iPad? Uh, do you did does each child if you have three kids, does each one need to have a TV in their room and a computer in their room and each one have their own iPad? Do they have to have designer shoes? Do they have to have the latest fashions to keep up with the kids at school? Those kinds of things. And also, do you expose your children to the poor? Do you expose them to the underprivileged? Yes. Uh, and that that's a huge thing that I think a lot of Catholics don't do enough of. I know I didn't do enough of that. You know, yeah. my child growing up. I know I'm preaching here to myself as much. as Well, anything. it's I, someone told me that. And I went down to Mother Teresa's with my kids down in Tijuana. And she, the kids saw how they, how they lived down there. And it was it was a, a, yeah. a game changer. You know, Bishop Sheen used to say, don't measure your generosity by how much you give. Rather, how much you have left over. So I, I say I, I had say that to myself and I say, my God's blessed me so much. But, you know, last time I looked, I don't own any of it, to be quite frank. I really don't. It's yeah. all God's, everything we have. And so it seems to me that Dorothy Day is a good model for us to implement the social teachings of the church. Doc, how can people get a hold of you with your YouTube channel or website or 
That's the best. Well, my webpage and and everything is on my blog, including my YouTube videos. Okay. It's it, it's a mouthful. It's gaudiumatspez22.com. Oh that's, right. that's right. Gaudium Gaudium is the Latin title of a Vatican II document, yep. the Church in the Modern World. Yeah. So G A U D I U M E T S P E S. All one word. Gaudium et spez dot twenty two dot com. Twenty two is a paragraph. And just, a number. And just give us a short synopsis of the kind of videos you do are, are I should say, YouTube. You, you take well, on- I do YouTube videos and podcasts, and I interview basically a lot of theologians and fellow cats. It's, it's a very Catholic intellectual That's kind right. of channel, but I try to make it so average non, well, you, you know, non-experts can yeah. can follow along as well. Some of it gets a little technical. Uh, but I think people can get things out of it. And sometimes I just I don't do I don't interview theologians. Sometimes I I just interview ordinary people, just like a couple of weeks ago. I, I interviewed three women that were former students of mine on, on what it means to be a Catholic mother in the world today. Awesome. And uh, last thought I have what <coughs> we can do for Holy Mother, the church. I talk about reparation. Um, I talk about, you know, the best thing we can do for Holy Mother Church is be holy. And live a holy life. Yeah. And and with your center of influence, your family, lead your family in holiness. Um, I also mentioned that when we hear about all the scandals in the church, and I'll, I want to get your take on this, Doc. I tell people we can make reparation for these sacrileges that are going on because what I, it's almost hard to imagine some of the things I have to say that are going on. Uh, in our hierarchy of the church, you know. Oh, we- uh, I yeah, absolutely. I, I I neglected to point out that one of the central things we do here on our farm is pray. Okay. We have a small chapel. We have a small chapel here, and during the warm weather months, since it's not heated, yeah. we have the Eucharist reserved when wow. groups come. They wow. we have mass. But my wife and I are Benedictine oblates, oh, as know. was Dorothy Good. Day, Good. and we, so we do liturgy, the hours, and so forth. So I can't emphasize enough to agree with what you just said, that our number one vocation is to pray and be holy. Yeah. Amen. Thanks again. Uh, If you were Jesse Romero, my question I asked Jesse at the end of every show, he doesn't know this, but I'm going to say, Doctor, what state should we be living in? And you're going to say, Pennsylvania. And I'm going to say, no. California? No. The state of grace. So there you go. State of grace. State of grace. There we go. And remember, our, Our Lady of Fatima said it well. She said, souls are going to hell because no one is there to pray and make sacrifices. We can offer up every action of our lives in union with Jesus Christ to help redeem the world? Yes, sign me up. Because now every action is like a blank check. If Christ's name is on it, it has infinite value. So I want to thank the good doctor for coming and joining us and teaching us about some moral theology classes here. So God bless you, Doc. And thank Thank you. And I want to thank our listeners for supporting us here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You can pick this up on our podcast our YouTube channel, and I want to thank everyone again for your support in doing this. God bless you.